You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey everybody, this is Wake Up Call the Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and this is in another edition of the Hashtag Femme Doctor series. And joining me today is Jessica Borshock, PhD, who's a psychologist in California. Welcome, Dr. Borshock. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you today. Likewise, I'm so excited to see you because we had some uh, snafus with the scheduling. So I'm glad (laughs) that you stuck with me. And here we are. Also, I want to tell everybody in the beginning that if you want to check out Dr. Borshock on Instagram, I highly recommend you do that. You can find her at Busy Mind Psychologist on Instagram. And I love what you're doing with your Instagram page because you've got a lot of fun stuff, but really informational, good stuff that people really need to know just about mental health and health in general. So thank you for that. I appreciate that a lot. And occasional cute puppy uh, photos of my husky. (laughs) Yes, because who doesn't like that? Baby pictures and animal pictures you can't go wrong with, right? And mental health tips. You got it all. (laughs) Yeah. And it must be interesting right now to be a psychologist or a mental health professional because of COVID that we've been dealing with for the past year. Have you seen different things trending as a result of COVID? Absolutely. I was actually just talking about this with colleagues the other day that we've seen a rise in folks struggling with health anxiety or what's called illness anxiety disorder, which is a preoccupation and a fear of having health conditions. And a lot of my folks who are dealing with just kind of generalized anxiety, as soon as the pandemic hit, found themselves becoming you know, overly anxious, researching everything, becoming really afraid of COVID. And I think part of that is because there's so much uncertainty that a lot of folks who already struggle with how uncertain and how out of control a lot of things are in our life, this is the perfect example, unfortunately, in which to kind of practice those skills. But it's it's been a very interesting opportunity for me because I primarily work with folks dealing with anxiety, stress, and burnout, as well as coping with health conditions. So I have seen a, a huge rise in people dealing not only with health concerns, but also burnout. Yeah, um, with respect to COVID, because I'm a divorce lawyer and lawyering is a very stressful field and there's a lot of lawyers that have burnout. So did COVID just kind of exacerbate that? It did. What happened? So first of all, people are working from home a lot more, which on the outside seems like a really wonderful thing. I know we've all fantasized. I've been working from home for a while, even before COVID, but I know a lot of people fantasize about getting to work from home and wearing sweatpants. But one of the difficulties is there is no transition. There's no barrier between or boundary between work life and home life. And so as people are trying to navigate this, and let's not even consider the fact that some of them have young children at home that they're somehow supposed to be able to watch and keep alive while doing their jobs. 
that uh, there's a huge adjustment period and people deal with it in one of two ways. Some folks develop some strategies for the long term. They're able to acknowledge, hey, I can only focus what's in my control right now. And they are able to flexibly adapt to the changes. People who are experiencing burnout, I've noticed are ones who have struggled with kind of understanding that this is a chronic situation that we're in. So I've actually noticed three different phases with each kind of serious lockdown or increase in in case numbers that people have been kind of white knuckling it for a while. Like, all right, I just got to get through this part and then everything will go back to normal. And as soon as we get information that nope, this is still a problem, people are still getting together when they're not supposed to, rates are increasing again, that there's this sense of hopelessness that they experience or helplessness. And it really starts leading to a lot of people experiencing burnout. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I've noticed that there are a lot of people, and I think I did this to some degree too, because none of us knew that this was going to turn into what it did. You kind of do just wait, okay, this is going to pass. I just have to get through this. And then everything's going to go right back to the way it was. And then it really just never did. Yeah. (laughs) And I would think, and you can tell me what you think about this. I think there are just people that really have a hard time adapting to change. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people that I think can kind of roll with it a little better. Is that that is absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely true. Being able to flexibly adapt, I like to think the people who are in the best situations are the ones who have a plan, but have room in the plan for when things go terribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> and they are able to adapt. That's the way to have the best vacation, to have a plan of where you're going, but when your car breaks down, when the hotel you're supposed to stay at, you know, uh, isn't working or is terrible, being able to shift and adapt and have the approach that this is different, it doesn't mean it's bad. And some people really struggle with that because they want to be in control of everything and having a structure or a plan gives them the illusion that they can control everything. And then when that plan falls apart, they're left feeling completely out of control and out of sorts and they struggle to recover from that. That's interesting what you just said. You use the word illusion because I know a coach that always says, you know, we all thought we had control, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's only since COVID has happened that we're using words like uncertain, right? You, I think you use that word when we first started Mm -hmm. talking and it's a word that I hear all the time now. And, but did we really have certainty before? Because no. Right. So we, we trick ourselves into thinking we have that. Exactly. I like to think that people who are able to adapt the most are willing to give up the perception of control to actually have real control over our lives. And the parts of our life that we have control over are pretty limited. It's what we do with our bodies and what comes out of our mouths in this moment. And that is it. We can plan for the future and we can learn from the past, but we can't influence them until they're actually happening right here and right now. We can set boundaries around other people, but we can't force other people to do things or we can't make them respond in a way that we want to. And when you're putting a lot of effort into trying to control things that are out of your control, what you're not doing is having that time and energy reserved for what 
is actually within your control and what you can actually make changes around. And so there's a lot of people who go through life thinking, oh yeah, I have this plan. I have my whole life figured out. I mean, I imagine as a divorce lawyer, you have that conversation a lot with people of, it's not just the relationship ending, but it is the idea of what they thought their life was going to be for the next 10, 20, 30 years that's suddenly upended. Yeah, that is a very recurring theme with my clients. And I refer them to someone like you to Mm -hmm. help them sort that out. But yeah, people have a really hard time with that. Some people more than others. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the hardest cases that are, are difficult to just move forward are the ones where at least one of the parties is having real difficulty just acknowledging that this is happening and, yeah. and to move forward. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like you spend a lot of your time in your sessions with your clients or patients, I'm not sure what you call them, um, talking about things like this? Yes, and and clients, though if I were in a hospital setting, they, they'd be called patients. But yeah, the clients I work with, a lot of people come into session saying, you know, I feel this way, I don't want to feel this way anymore, make it go away. <laughs> and that comes from a place of really struggling, feeling a lot of pain, feeling a lot of fear. What I help shift people into is how do we notice the patterns that we find ourselves getting into? And this could be avoiding doing things in our life that are important to us in, for you know Netflix and taking naps and not washing the dishes, or it could be getting stuck in our head, overanalyzing, over planning, overthinking, going through all of these different scenarios. Those are the folks that tend to struggle with uncertainty a bit more helping them first realize what you're doing isn't actually serving you. It might make you feel better or feel more in control in the moment. That's that perceived control. But in the long term, all it's doing is stealing from your present. It's putting time and energy into something that we don't even know if it'll come to pass and it's taking away from you enjoying life right now. And so if we can begin to notice these patterns, we can then begin to develop skills and strategies for breaking those patterns and shifting to move towards the type of life that we wanna have, which is really at the end of the day, what people want. They want to live a meaningful, fulfilled life and want to be able to flexibly adapt to the stuff that shows up along the way. Yeah. Why do you have any theory about why it seems like everybody has anxiety these days? Yes, I I do. If we take it back to just kind of the evolutionary reason of why our mind is the way it is, our mind is a threat detection system. Its entire purpose is to like look out for lions and tigers and bears and remind you to run from them. (laughs) And in our ancestors' lives, a lot of their threats were things that they could problem solve. They were, you know, access to food and clean drinking water and shelter and being aware of predators or kind of rival tribes, for example. And so all of those threats were things they could handle and problem solve in the moment. They would deal with them and then they would move on. In today's society, while there are always still things in our in our present life that can be threats to us, most of our threats come from 
social situations, from not being deemed good enough, from being rejected, from being excluded, from fear of losing our jobs um, and our livelihoods, which has been a big theme during COVID. And so as a result, if there's not like a lion right in front of you, your mind is not going to stay in the present when we're enjoying talking with our friends. That's useless to it in terms of survival. It's going to either jump to the future and go, what are all the things that could go wrong? Or it jumps to the past and says, where are the situations where you've messed up and how can we learn from them so that they don't happen again? The difficulty with that is we have an endless amount of what if scenarios and past mistakes to run through. So our mind is constantly throwing out all these things that could go wrong but we don't have any control over them in the future. And that creates a lot of tension and stress. And so what I like helping clients do is train their minds how to be more present and connected with what they do have control over. And how much do you get into their background, like their childhood and the influences that they had from family? Because can is it sort of contagious or genetic? when you're around other people that are just warriors and have a lot of anxiety, do you sort of pick up on that? Do you learn it from them? You absolutely can. So most mental health conditions are a little bit genetic and a little bit environment. They're kind of a bit of nature and nurture, and it varies to what degree based on what someone's dealing with. But anxiety, um, we can... Uh, inherit that to a to a degree, so be at a higher risk of having troubles with anxiety. Um, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, oh yeah, my mom was a worrier, or my dad used to, you know, fret about things all of the time. They didn't necessarily have diagnostic labels back then, but there was just this understanding that that was kind of their tendencies. And then if you grow up in an environment where someone's constantly worrying, where you are the focus of that worry, um, and you hear the ways that they start thinking or the things that they begin to think about, I have a lot of clients who come to therapy now because they've started to notice their kids doing a lot of things that they're doing and it freaks them out because they don't want their children to suffer the same way that they have. And so they're now willing to learn a new way forward so that they can set a better precedent for their kids. Yeah, I was actually just gonna ask, ask that question. I think you just answered it though, is do, do you find sometimes the parents will then try to focus on fixing their child when really what they need to do is just fix the behavior that you're modeling for them? Yeah, my my standpoint in therapy is there is only one person that we can influence and that is ourselves. So if we want to help our children have a more nurturing environment or learn different types of skills, we lead through example. We can set certain boundaries. We can learn to have certain conversations. And the most important thing is for them to see you not only thriving, but trying because a lot of times parents think they have to be perfect or they have to never have any problems. And that doesn't really teach kids how to live a good life. But if you can begin to, to model, okay, I'm worried about this, but this is how I'm handling it. Not only are you showing them it's okay to not be okay sometimes, but you're giving them the tools for how to deal with it. So that is a really good segue into um, a question that I just thought of because yeah. of what you're talking about. 
what would you tell someone who's going through a divorce and they're trying really hard to sort of insulate their children from that? Mm -hmm. It definitely depends on the age of the children. So I would say at the onset that kids are not dumb. Uh, kids are actually way more sensitive to nonverbal cues, to the kind of emotional temperature in the room than adults, because adults have all of these thoughts and things in their head getting in the way where kids are more prone to learning through simply watching um, and understanding how other people behave. So the first thing is not pretending that everything is okay because that is going to be extremely confusing to children that are picking up on some of the tension. And then the main points are making sure that you're not overly sharing with your kids about the divorce, particularly oversharing about what the other person may have done or your opinions or thoughts about the other person. Because even if you want to be done with the person you're divorcing, that is your child's parent. And not only will you have to deal with them at least until they're 18, uh, your kids turn 18, but they still have the opportunity to have a good relationship with that person. Someone might not be a great husband or wife, but that doesn't mean they can't have the opportunity to be a good parent. And you don't want to poison that relationship. One, because it just is ugly and it makes you look bad, but also it causes a lot of stress for kids. So we want to make sure we're not bad mouthing the other person to the kids. We want to make sure that we are seeking treatment if we need to, to process our own emotions and to figure out how to co-parent. So there are a lot of, of clients who will go to therapy to learn just how to successfully co-parent because you don't want to put the kids in the middle. You don't want them to be the messenger back and forth between the houses because it includes them in decisions and in situations that aren't really their responsibility or any of their business. And it puts that, that pressure on them and teaches them that here are two grown adults who aren't capable of communicating with each other rather than are you able to model for your kids what it's like to have healthy boundaries and still be able to communicate with someone even if there's been a lot of pain or difficulty. I always hear a lot of people say, we're staying together for the kids, but I know, right? But then meanwhile, they have a, they have a really unhealthy relationship and I'm sure that they're modeling behavior that they probably wouldn't want their children to continue in their own lifetime. But I think they're unaware that they're doing that. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I oftentimes think it's a process of being, of learning to be self-aware of one, what your own needs are. So asking yourself, if the kids weren't in the picture, would the two of you be together? And if it's an immediate no, well, that's something at least to explore. I'm not saying like run out and get divorced right now, but maybe talking to someone about why that there's that immediate reaction. What are you not getting in the relationship? What are problems that are showing up in the relationship? And that can give you a starting point for understanding what needs to be worked on or maybe seeing that this isn't working for us at all. And when we think about staying together for children, there's often this idea of, well, I don't want them to come from a divorced household. I want them to have 
this beautiful image of a whole family, whatever that means. But there's a difference between people simply living in the same house together and being a family. And so we want to take a step back and think about when I think about family, what are the qualities or characteristics that make that up? Maybe it's kindness, maybe it's spending time together, maybe it's building memories, maybe it's um, communication and trust and boundaries. And then taking a look at your relationship and seeing how close do does what your relationship look like mirror the type of environment that you want your kids to grow up in. And then that gives you a starting point for Well, if we want to stay together for the kids, let's put in the work. Um, You don't just get to say, oh, yeah, we're going to stay together for the kids and then keep going on as normal because that doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I think it's just an excuse to sort of postpone making a decision. It can be. It can be. We've all had experiences where we know something isn't right but we're just not ready to make that decision or pull that plug, whether it's a relationship or a job or a friendship or just some kind of environment. Sometimes it takes a little while for us to feel very confident in that decision so we can move forward without regrets. Sometimes we need another person's perspective in order for us to see what's actually going on in the situation because we're so in it that it's hard for us to step back and see. And then sometimes it takes some while, a time to build up the strength and the courage to leave because as we talked about before, it's not simply ending a relationship, but it's ending the plan that you thought you were going to have for what your life looks like. And Having an understanding of what life looks like after divorce can sometimes make it easier for us to take that step if it's the right one for us. That's great advice. And I think I should keep that in mind, too, when I'm counseling prospective clients. People haven't come on board yet because that's the most frustrating part to me is when someone comes in and talks about how profoundly unhappy they are. But then at the end of the conversation, they say, okay, well, I guess I have to think about it. And I'm always like, but what is there to think about, you know? So I think I could be a little bit more compassionate in that respect. And that goes back to that idea of uncertainty. There's that quote, you know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. There, as long as we are physically safe, um, there It can be sometimes easy to stay in a situation that's not great, but that you know what to expect than to go out into the world on your own and have no idea what you're going to encounter. And that's why it can be important to talk through that with a therapist. It can also be important if you have friends who have maybe gone through a divorce or who are single to reach out to them to understand what does your day-to-day life look like? Or even seek out Facebook groups. I'm sure there are a ton of Facebook groups for, you know, divorced parents or, you know, divorced people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, And even if you haven't gotten divorced yet or start that process, there's a wealth of information out there. People have already walked this journey. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, that's great advice. And there are a ton of Facebook groups out there, yes. some better than others. But <laughs> I think once you join, you get a sense of if that's going to work for you or not, if yeah. you should find another. 
there is something I'm curious about. This is something that's kind of popped up for me at different times over my life. I've heard that if you grow up in sort of a, a chaotic environment, that sometimes you kind of seek out, even if you're totally unaware of it, you seek out chaos. Is there truth to that? So there is some truth to that. I think um, oftentimes it can be a bit um, overblown or exaggerated, but think about it this way. There is a difference between something that is comfortable and something that is healthy for us. And so if we are used to growing up into an environment maybe where there's a lot of inconsistencies, there's a lot of screaming and yelling, that becomes our norm. And imagine growing up in a loud, chaotic, all over the place environment and then dating someone who is has a very healthy communication style, who grew up in a very what would be considered maybe traditional family. And all of a sudden, all of these thoughts and fears come up around, like, do I even know how to be in a relationship? They must think I'm really weird. This feels really weird and uncomfortable because it's different. And so we might seek out people who mirror that type of behavior because it's familiar. And also because there's this belief that maybe they understand what it's like to go through that and grow up in that environment and that they'll at least be seen and be heard. And usually people get to a point where they realize whatever I've been doing hasn't been working for me, whether it's how I show up to relationships or the people I choose to be in relationships with. And usually it's a combination of the two. And that is where that growth happens as they begin to step back and say, okay, what have I learned from growing up that has been valuable to me, either of what I don't want or what aspects of it I liked? And then what are some skills or a type of relationship that I want to have that I can move towards? Um, I know, for example, I, I had gone through a really, um, I was in a really bad situation and had kind of gotten out of it and was nervous to date again. And my own therapist had me look at my friends' relationships who I felt were in really solid relationships and go, what are the qualities of that relationship? What are the qualities of your friends' partners that you admire or would like to have in your own relationship? And use that as a starting point for understanding what you're actually looking for. That's interesting that you had an experience where maybe you weren't as self-aware mm -hmm. and this other person pointed it out to you because self-awareness is something that I um, am very interested in. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's kind of impossible for us to ever be totally 100% self-aware, yeah. but how can we be a little more self-aware to recognize these things? Yeah, yeah. And I don't even recommend being 100% self-aware. I think there is some value in, you know, telling ourselves white lies <laughs> um, and, and that sort of thing. But it starts with paying attention in the present moment. Like I said before, our mind jumps to the past, it jumps to the future. And when our mind is time traveling, what it's not doing is connecting with our experience in the here and now what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and how we're engaging with the world. And so it can be really helpful to take a moment to almost drop into your body and go, what sensations am I feeling when I'm 
talking to this person at this job, interacting in this environment? What kind of thoughts do I tell myself on a regular basis? Um, What are the situations that I find myself leaning away from or um, avoiding? A good way to check in around this is asking yourself, what are some things that are really important to you that you want to do more of? And then reflecting on when you're supposed to do those things, what do you find yourself doing instead? And that can give you some awareness into those patterns. I want to exercise, but every time I think about exercising, I just get exhausted and overwhelmed. And then I lay on the couch and binge watch Bridgerton. (laughs) I think think everyone's had at least one day like that. (laughs) Of course. And again, that's not a bad thing. We simply want to make sure that when we're making that choice, it is our intentional choice rather than our emotions deciding how we respond. And things like mindfulness can be really helpful. Um, A lot of times we think about mindfulness as a means to feel relaxed or calm or like clear our mind, whatever that means. But really the purpose of mindfulness is to drop down into your experience and become an observer of your thoughts, feelings, memories, sensations, being able to intentionally change our focus. So noticing when our mind has gone to the past catching that and bringing it back to the present. And so by doing things as simple as a breathing exercise or a body scan, you can begin to tune into your body a little bit. And there are a ton of apps, like I'm a huge fan of Headspace, but there are like a billion apps out there and YouTube yeah. channels and things like that to teach you how to how to begin practicing. Yeah, um, I'm hearing a lot of things from you that are sort of reminiscent of the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Have you read that? So I actually haven't. I believe it might even be on my bookshelf right now of, a, of one to read. But he, I know from my understanding of a lot of his work is that he does talk a lot about being connected. I mean, the power of now, the power of being connected with this moment of being connected with who you are and who you want to be. And that can be a very scary experience for a lot of people to know themselves because they're undoubtedly going to experience faults, which is normal. We're imperfect. Um, But if we have spent our whole life wanting to be perfect or believing certain things about who we are and then our reality is different than that it can be really uncomfortable and even painful uh, to go through that self-exploration so do you have um, a specialty is there a certain kind of client that you sort of specialize in yeah so i i mean i call myself the busy mind psychologist i work with folks with busy minds i work with the overwhelmed high achiever, the productive procrastinators, the recovering perfectionists, and the self-proclaimed, you know, control freaks. The folks who spend a lot of time in their mind over analyzing, over planning, trying to figure out the best way forward because they're struggling with the idea of uncertainty. Um, And I really love helping them learn how to be more present, how to sink into their own lives so that they can be in control of what their next move is and stepping into their best self. I think I might be all of those people that you just described. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so you do telehealth, you're in California. Mm -hmm. 
But can you, do you have to treat only people in California or can you treat other people outside California? So unfortunately, uh, the way psychology works is licensures are by state. So currently I am licensed in uh, California and then I'm also licensed in Ontario, Canada, because I used to live near Toronto for a couple of years. And uh, so I can only see people who are located in California and in Ontario. But the cool thing about telehealth is, you know, California is a pretty big state. <laughs> um, I can see folks, even though I'm based in LA, I can see folks in San Diego or in San Francisco or in, um, you know, all, all the places in between as long as we have a, an internet connection. Yeah, I really hope that they come up with a way to fix this problem because a lot of the, the um, physicians that I've talked to, they have the same issue is that we can all do telehealth now. Everyone seems to be working remotely. Coaches do it. They can coach anybody anywhere, mm -hmm. but physicians can't um, treat anybody outside of their state because their their malpractice insurance wouldn't cover it yeah. and they're not licensed in the other states. So I kind of feel like that needs to catch up with the times. It, it does. There are a lot of things because these legal and ethical decisions are so nuanced, it can take a long time for the licensing boards to catch up. I mean, even there's very little information around psychologists and social media. And we've all kind of been behind the scenes sharing information about, you know, how do the ethics apply to what we're doing? What if we have a public profile? Can a client follow us? You know, how do we make sure we're maintaining that confidentiality? When COVID hit, there wasn't a lot of information about doing telehealth. Yeah. for therapists. Um, I was thankfully already doing telehealth prior to COVID. So I felt like I didn't have a huge learning curve and I already knew um, how to set myself up to be um, ethical and also being able to provide the best service for my clients. But there is a lot of confusion out there. And sometimes I think we're a little too hesitant to um, make decisions around recommendations and as a result life happens and we have to make things up on the fly and that's maybe not the best way to do it uh, and recently due to covid they created different allowances um, for being able to see clients in like neighboring states and things like that but a lot of uh, psychologists myself included were hesitant to start those practices because they could revoke them at any point and then you're basically abandoning a client and that's wildly unethical. Um, so yeah. I think the difficulty is there's a lot of state regulations on um, what's who's considered a, um, a minor, um, who can seek treatment at what age. Um, if a child seeks treatment, at what age are they allowed to have some confidentiality around what happens in session from their parents? And it varies widely by state. And so that is one of the reasons it's become state licensure. But I agree. Um, I I think the the barriers are easily solvable, and the benefits are very large, particularly in areas where maybe there aren't that many licensed psychologists um, or licensed mental health professionals who'd be able to offer services or specialties that that person's struggling with. Yeah, and we won't even get into health insurance. Oh yeah, no, I, it's, that's a, that's yeah. a whole other. <laughs> that's another hour or longer. <laughs> so 
So I want to talk about you a little bit. You know, how did you come to be a psychologist? How did that happen? Oh man, that is that is a fun a fun conversation. So um, I always knew I wanted to be in some type of health field. Um, I grew up, a lot of my family members are medical doctors, and I actually went into undergrad. I did my undergrad at Florida State University um, thinking I would be pre-med and go on to medical school. Um, and within my first semester, I really decided medicine wasn't for me, mostly because many physicians don't get the chance to spend as much time with clients as their patients as they want to. Um, you know, they're stacked with uh, with patients all day long. They maybe have five to 15 minutes to spend with them. And I really wanted to be able to help someone um, and dig into some of the details as instead of simply maybe giving recommendations or, or diagnosing what was going on. And I took a couple of years in, in undergrad to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And my dad had actually uh, recommended like, oh, you should go into therapy. Like your friends always come to you for information and, and advice and things like that. Uh, and I had taken a career placement test and it had been therapist, teacher, or like author, um, which is ironic because I love all of those things and have done all of those things. Um, and I was very fortunate that Florida State University has an excellent psychology undergrad program. They have an excellent graduate program as well. I got a lot of really great experience um, participating in research, which allowed me to apply to a doctoral program straight out of undergrad. So I applied um, to a number of programs. Uh, PhD programs are extremely competitive. And I ended up getting uh, into a PhD program where you get your master's degree along the way. And so I went straight from undergrad uh, into a PhD program at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And the way clinical psychology works is you pick an area of interest and then you apply to a program that has an advisor who is doing similar type of research. So at the time, my background and my interest was in obesity and weight loss um, and just kind of health in general. And I did that for a long time. I really loved it. Um, and in grad school, I learned about acceptance and commitment therapy, um, also known as ACT, and that became my main uh, the main kind of way that I helped people. And then I did my internship at the San Diego VA. I moved up to Canada and was in pra uh, group practice for a couple of years. And then I recently moved back to California uh, to start up my own private practice. Wow, that's quite a trajectory. Impressive. Yes, it's been a little bit all over the place. Um, I, I got my uh, PhD when I was uh, 27, which um, was fairly quick for me. And I've had a lot of really amazing opportunities just through connecting with other people. I've gotten to co-author a number of books. Um, I am what's called a peer-reviewed ACT trainer, which that title means nothing to most people, but essentially means I have been reviewed by my peers to be an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy. And I actually train other mental health providers in and health providers in how to use ACT with clients. Um, and within the last kind of two years, I've become really interested in how mental health is portrayed in the media and on social media. And that's what started me on my Instagram account. It's uh, I'm in the process of starting a YouTube channel of really wanting to not only serve clients one-on-one, -on -one, but 
um, convey accurate, you know, science-driven uh, information on mental health to people because there's so much noise out there um, yeah. around what to do. It's it's the wild west in terms of like wellness and mental health. It is. Um, I'm curious though, how did you select? Why was why were you interested in obesity? Mm-hmm. I have I prior to going uh, into psychology when I was a when I was thinking about being pre-med, I was really thinking about things that I loved and what I could help people with. Living, creating a healthy lifestyle, um, helping people be more active, um, helping people learn how to find balance in their life so that we aren't depriving ourselves of things, but we're having a better relationship with food and our body. Things that now are maybe called intuitive eating, um, but strategies for, for helping people thrive. And in my mind, that was through um, working with folks who, who are obese because there are a lot of different ways that they can change their life. And there's also a lot of mental health factors that play into eating and exercise habits. Eating is a byproduct of how we cope with distress or trauma or anxiety. And so it gave me the opportunity to kind of like dabble in a lot of different things and explore a person as uh, their whole self rather than breaking it down into a specific diagnosis or a specific condition. And then did did you just, did it kind of just naturally flow into ACT where you could help a lot of other people, not just people with obesity? Yeah, so ACT has a a really strong background in health psychology. So there's a ton of research on using ACT with chronic pain. Um, And then there's a couple of researchers doing really excellent work on ACT for weight loss. And, um, And that's kind of how I got into it. And then the cool thing about ACT is it is what's called a transdiagnostic model, which essentially means that it is not a treatment for a specific diagnosis. It teaches an approach. It teaches an approach to our mind, an approach to um, how to look at our experience and work towards, you know, and evaluate how something's working in a given moment and really helping people see patterns, learn how to come in contact with their full experience, even things that are painful or scary or anxiety provoking, so that they can move forward towards the type of life that they wanna have. Um, And that was the message I really loved. I loved that it wasn't like, let's get rid of your anxiety. And then you're kind of just left like, and what now? (laughs) Yeah. But it, it really, it took, it took that process of let's figure out what's not working for you and then help move towards what is working for you so that you can thrive in your life, so that you can move towards the things that matter most to you. And that really connected with my desire to help someone not only, you know, maybe it's lose weight or, or have a better relationship with their body or be more physically active, but for the purpose of having maybe a better life. And so, those and that, two things really blended beautifully. Yeah, I like it. And it makes it sound people it makes people sound less crazy too. Yeah, it's <laughs> it it takes the 
idea that like I don't believe that there are broken people. I think some people are stuck in patterns that are no longer serving them, but that served a purpose in the past. And I think that can be really hard for us to acknowledge sometimes that sometimes the things that we do that we don't like is serving us in some way or did serve us in in the past. Um, people develop certain communication styles because they maybe needed to be really quiet or needed to be really bold in order to survive in the environment that they were in. And now they're in a more stable environment and those habits and patterns just aren't working for them anymore. And they have to learn how to develop new strategies for moving forward. Um, there is a huge overlap between uh, sexual trauma and, and obesity. Um, which makes perfect sense. One of the ways that one, we cope with eating food and there is this kind of subconscious idea that if we you know, make ourselves unattractive that people won't focus on us. So you'll see, for example, a lot of people when they're starting to lose weight or maybe getting stronger and fitter, that some of these old anxieties and fears and traumas start um, bothering them more frequently because people are commenting even in a positive way on the transformation that's happening and they that attention even though it's well-meaning can be very triggering yeah that's interesting i i have heard something similar to that in the past that is interesting but that a lot of that comes down to self-awareness again is yep. being aware that you know that's happening so I, I hope that people will watch this or listen to it on the podcast and maybe um, turn inward a little bit to, to kind of see where they might have some patterns that are interfering with them living the life that they want. Yeah. And on my uh, website, busymindpsychologist.com, I do have, uh, you mentioned being kind of all of all of the types of the busy minds, but there is a quiz that I have on um, what type of busy mind are you and a free uh, workbook that you can use that goes through some strategies for the different ones. And if you join my email, one of the emails that I send out is a worksheet that helps you understand some of those patterns. Um, so it's a, a worksheet called The Life Map. And it's a tool that helps, it has a couple of different questions that helps us understand what are some of those thoughts, feelings, memories, and sensations that are showing up and how do we respond to them? Um, so if that might be helpful for folks who are maybe struggling of like, I want to be more self-aware, but where do I start? Yeah. Well, I want to do it. I'm, I'm, as soon as we're done here, I'm going on to your website and, um, I hope to God I'm not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will give you the one that you are the most. Okay, so I, I'll, I pr I'll let you know. <laughs> yes, please do. Please do. <laughs> and then um, before we wrap up, because I want to be respectful of your time, I'm a total book nerd mm -hmm. and I'm finding it very distracting for people who are watching the video. You have this bookcase behind you. And I'm dying to know what is on the bookcase. So I'm, I'm not going to ask you to tell me everything that's on there, but could you maybe pick out like two or three books that you feel like, you know, made a huge impact on you? Oh, yes. This is, uh, and this is only, for people who are watching the video, this is only half of the bookcase. So the, like, it's a... Oh, oh, I love it. It's book porn. It's book porn. I, I'm, I'm a book hoarder. 
there are there are a couple of books. So um, one of the books I really love is by Carol Dweck called Mindset, and I really love this book because it goes through not only um, strategies but also the research behind having a fixed mindset versus having a growth mindset. And then if you do have a fixed mindset, how to move towards having a growth mindset. So how to change your relationship with failure, with taking risk, with moving forward so that every opportunity is an opportunity to grow, not an opportunity to be you know, shamed or to fail or um, to not succeed. Because oftentimes those fears hold us back from trying opportunities because we're so afraid of failing that we aren't willing to put ourselves into situations where we can learn and grow. So that is one of my favorite books. One of my old supervisors gave me that one. Um, The other book that I really like, I actually don't think I have it on the bookshelf right now because I loaned it out to someone, is um, uh, The Neighborhood Project by David Sloan Wilson. Um, This is a book written by an evolutionary biologist. He's my favorite evolutionary biologist, if people are allowed to have those. And he goes over um, understanding how our communities work. And he does all these fun little experiments in his environment around how to help not just people thrive, but help communities thrive. And I think this is a really important idea because oftentimes we can only do so much work on ourselves, but sometimes the environment that we're in, whether from systemic issues or um, people's own difficulties, that we wanna make ourselves better, but we also wanna change our communities as well and and have groups of people that are are succeeding and thriving together. Um, And it goes over some of the science behind it. So that's kind of like a nerdy book. Um, And then the kind of complement to that is The Nurture Effect by Anthony Biglin that goes into the research around how to uh, create nurturing societies. So those are some of the like nerdy books. Um, And if people are interested in learning more about acceptance and commitment therapy, Um, There are a couple of books that I would recommend. One would be The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. It's a really great book. I feel like it's it's like reading or talking to a friend over a cup of coffee and it goes through some of the principles of ACT. And then Be Mighty by Jill Stoddard, which is specifically for women and helping women, you know, step into their power, um, helping women live the type of life that they want free of some of the rules and labels and constraints that society puts on them. And I could go on for like the next 10 hours about different books, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, oh, yeah. it's always a good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's one I haven't read yet, but it's been on my list for a really long time and it keeps popping up. I feel like the universe is saying, you need to read this book. It is It is a good one. I actually don't even have it on my shelf because uh, my partner uh, took it because he's reading it right now, but it's a very, it's a very tiny book. Um, and it is a very profound and impactful one. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm so excited. I, I can't wait to get all these books. I have read Mindset, mm-hmm. and it sort of reminds me of Who Moved My Cheese or Who Moved the Cheese. Have you seen I've, that? I've heard of that before, but I haven't read it. It's super short. And from what I understand, it used to, it circulates a lot in the sales community because it, I don't know, it teaches like business people to yeah. 
like what um Carol Dweck says is to have the growth mindset. But it's super short, it's fun, it's an easy read, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm all about the book recommendations. I, to be completely honest, some of the books I haven't read yet, I have a problem of getting excited about book recommendations and then I do too. Them. And there is a Japanese word for that. Starts with a T. I forget the word. I've heard of that. I've heard of that. And I remember reading it and going, yes, <laughs> I relate. Yes, I know. Because I, my, your, your bookshelf looks puny next to my bookshelf, which is a little embarrassing. Well, so the funny thing is I don't buy, I have not since 2012 bought any paperback fiction books. So this is like the second half of my bookshelf's fiction. Like that is only things that I read like when I was younger um, that I've kind of held on to, but I have thousands of fiction What's books. What's your favorite? On. My favorite fiction books, my favorite fiction author is, I'm a big fan of urban fantasy books and um, paranormal romance, um, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. So um, my favorite author in the entire world is Nalini Singh. She's a New Zealand-based uh, romance and paranormal romance author, and she has two uh, series, the Side Changeling series, PSY-Changeling, and um, I just call it like the Archangel series, um, but they're really good, and the Side Changeling series has like I think 23 books in it so far, because she's been writing since the early 2000s, so um, if you get into it, you have lots of books to read, uh, and those are wow. the ones I go back to and read over and over again. And then my favorite urban fantasy uh, novelist is, or author is uh, Karen Chance. And okay. she has a Cassandra Palmer series, which I like, but the there's a spinoff se series, Darina Basarab. I've never said these names out loud before. <laughs> um, series, but the Darina series, that is absolutely wonderful. I didn't even know that that was a genre. Paranormal romance? romance. Is that what yeah, so like think about... Um, there's there's like a, a young adult like so Twilight would be like the young adult version of that. Um, but paranormal romance is um, romance that includes some type of um, kind of paranormal. So vampires, werewolves, um, you know, magic, witches, fae, all of that kind of stuff. OK, um, it sort of reminds me a little bit of Anne Rice, her books. Yeah, it can be. Her her books are a bit heavier. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the, these are not Interview with a Vampire. So I'm just... Yeah. She also has a wolf series. Can't remember the name of it. I read the first one and it was really good. And it's yeah. a whole series. And then she's got some other series about witches. Mm -hmm. She's really a very talented writer. Yeah. And those ones might be very kind of urban fantasy. So urban fantasy is essentially, not to go too much on a tangent, but um, is... Um, is usually is is set in an urban city. So, for example, um, the Rachel Morgan series by Kim Harrison, which is also a great series, is set in I want to say Cincinnati, and so it has that grittiness to it. And it usually is basically our world in either our time period or a little bit in the future, but there's some type of like magical element to it. And sometimes humans know about the magical element and they're, you know, the other species are out in society and sometimes it's hidden um, and it's a little bit darker. So um, like, you know, favorite characters die. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, maybe maybe you will be inspired to read another fiction book after this. Uh-huh, absolutely. Well, I'm actually writing a fiction book. That's one of my oh. uh, my bucket list uh, items. So it will probably never see the light of day, but it's it's for my own self-development and growth. Is it urban fantasy? It is, um, yes. Yeah, so it's urban fantasy with a little bit of a paranormal romance thread. It's about a a human who becomes a psychologist to like the most powerful vampires in in the city. Are you trying to tell us something? We'll <laughs> <laughs> plead the fifth on that one. I hope that you finish your book. Thank you. Thank I'll you. Read I appreciate it. it. I'll read it. <laughs> All right. So let's end with you reminding us how we can find you. I know you're on Instagram at busy mind psychologist, but do you have a website? Yes. So busymindpsychologist.com. I keep it nice and easy. Everything's busy mind psychologist. Um, and then I am, I just started a YouTube channel. I literally at the time of this recording, uh, do not have any videos up, but I will in the beginning of April, um, whenever you're watching this and that will be busy mind psychologist as well. Um, awesome. so yeah, well, I'll send you this video and hopefully if you would like to, you can post it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if anyone ever has any questions, please feel free. Um, send me a DM. It's the easiest way to kind of get in touch with me. And if you're interested in working with me in therapy and you're in based in California, you can go to the therapy tab at busymindpsychologist.com and schedule a free consultation. Awesome. Thank you so much for your shop. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.